Good morning, good afternoon or good evening and welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is for you and I together to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, over the coming years. Welcome to our latest episode in our season working through the book of Leviticus. In today's episode we're going to explore a unique chapter, Leviticus chapter 14. A chapter that delves into the rituals concerning skin disease, cleansing and the consecrations of individuals thereafter, but also including property and homes. These are the rituals which were specific to the context of the ancient Israelites and revealed to that nation then, but they still offer some valuable insights that I believe can be applied by us today. So join us as we journey through this chapter, unrivaled in its symbolic and historical significance, and understanding how we can find the spiritual lessons and apply that lie underneath and behind these ancient practices. So welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Now, at one time or another, I suspect everyone listening to this has experienced illness. And today, the question I suppose I'm going to ask is, what should we do after we've regained our health back? Well, I suppose that largely depends on the nature and the duration of the sickness. But what should we do after we've regained our health? For those who've maybe just experienced a short-term illness, bouncing back and resuming your normal routine is probably quite easy and it's something we've all done at some time or another. But what if the illness is more serious and it's lingered? Perhaps you made a point of celebrating your recovery. I know when I visited countless people in hospital, above anything else, the thing they yearn to do after recovery is just to get home and have a rest and some home-cooked food. Now you might wonder why I'm talking about this. Well, in this chapter that we've reached today, there are rituals. Now don't get me wrong, they don't apply to us in any way as Christian believers. However, what lies beneath are important lessons, things that we can extract from this teaching. So today we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 14. And of all things, it's going to give us a discussion about skin diseases. It's important to note that what's said in this text, all 54 verses about it, is not saying anything about a cure. Rather, the people are going to undergo rituals for those who have not seeking a cure. It's after they've been diagnosed and even if they've got better. So these are God-appointed rituals. Now, as has been a bit of our pattern in Leviticus, we're not going to read the whole 54 verses. Time just won't allow. I will be running through them all and referring to them, but if you want to follow along, there's an active link in the episode notes page to the Bible Gateway text covering all those, or you could just have your Bible open at Leviticus chapter 14. If you're not seeing an active link in your episode notes page, wherever you get your podcasts from currently, you can just visit the podcast on the home page where it's hosted at thebibleproject.buzzsprite.com. So with that in mind, let's begin with Leviticus chapter 14, starting with the opening verse. Now what it says in the first verses are, The Lord said to Moses, These are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing, when they are brought to the priest. So I'll just pause straight away and recap 
on what we've talked about in chapter 13. Because understanding the context is critical to getting the essence of this chapter. Now we're going to come across the use of a term leper in the context of Leviticus. But it doesn't necessarily respond to what we know as leprosy today. That is also a term which I'm not comfortable with today as it designates someone by the disease. I'm much more comfortable with describing someone who has leprosy today as someone with leprosy rather than using what historically has been a derogatory term or certainly came that way in the Middle Ages. The use of the term translated as leper referring to someone with leprosy comes from a Greek translation of the Septicant around 258 BC. The translators didn't actually translate the Hebrew word, instead they transliterated it, resulting in the word leopard. In other words, spots on the skin which made someone look leopard-like. English translators later adopted this transliteration, even though scholars all agree that the Hebrew word described was used to describe a range of skin conditions, any form of abnormality of the skin, affecting not only individuals, but interesting, we'll see that this problem can also affect clothing and houses. So the term primarily refers to any form of skin disease, but it's also used to describe when a situation, when a house has been contaminated by some sort of growth or fungus. Now this chapter is divided into two parts, the ceremony after the person has been cleaned, and then what to do regarding the property. So again, I need to stress this is not about cures for these conditions. It's about returning people to a situation of being ceremonially clean, free from defilement, and it is not saying that the illnesses themselves are intrinsically sinful. That's an important point to make, a point that I think most people don't understand when approaching these passages even today. These rituals being described are ceremonial in nature. They're things done to allow people to return to the community's religious life. Now, in the following verses, we find the priest examining the one who has been healed of what is described as leprosy. And it says if it's healed, the priest could then initiate a cleansing ritual involving, well, birds, cedarwood, scarlet and hyssop. The ritual is essential to enable that individual to reintegrate into the community's fellowship and worship. In other words, to enable them to worship God along with all the other people in and around the tabernacle. And that ritual brings us up to the point of verse 7 in chapter 14, where we see one of the birds is killed, and it is to be killed over running water in an earthen vessel, symbolizing the former state of uncleanliness that would have led to death. The other living bird is then dipped in the blood of the slain bird along with some of these other constituents added, the scarlet and hyssop. This symbolic act signifies the purification, thing that allows the cleansed individual to be pronounced clean and released into the open. When the bird is released, it symbolizes the individual's freedom from the effects of the disease. Obviously, you can't read this without having a resonance comparing to the two goats on the Day of Atonement. More of that later. But also worth pointing out from a Christian perspective is these events foreshadow Christian baptism, 
when the believer is submerged in the water, symbolically washing them of their sin to then be raised up to walk in the newness of life. At any rate, the priest then sprinkles the blood on the infected person or the previously infected person and when doing so pronounces them clean, then the bird is taken and released in an open field into the air. Verse 8 continues with instructions about how that cleansed person must then wash their clothes, shave all their hair and wash themselves in water to achieve the state of complete cleanliness. Following this, they were to come to the camp, but to still remain outside the camp for seven days. Please, friends, it's important to note when the text makes these mentions of being clean and unclean, it is referring to ceremonial cleaning. It does not imply that that person is in any way stuck in any state of personal sin. They just must not re-enter the camp until the period of ceremonial cleansing has taken place. So for seven days, they live in a tent, not even in their own house. Then verse 9 describes what happens after that seven days. As I said, the person shaves off all the hair, including the beard and even the eyebrows, and they wash their clothes and their body in water. And then following this, they would be considered clean. And on the eighth day, the person was allowed to partake in a ceremony involving making offerings to the Lord. The verses 12 to 18 detail then what is called a trespass offering. And verse 19 introduces the idea again of the sin offering, followed by, in verse 20, a burnt offering. So essentially, we see again four different offerings have been presented following this situation. Now, since we've been studying the book of Leviticus together, you will recall that these offerings have appeared before in some detail in the early chapter. We've encountered them all before. But this time they're being done in the sense of a series of offerings to recognize the cleansing of the person previously ceremonially unclean and allowing them now to participate in the religious and ritual life of the people. Now remember, all the way through here in chapter 14, we are talking about an individual who has previously been afflicted by a disease, one that led to their isolation outside the camp. And upon their healing, the priest has to examine them, declare them clean, and then they undergo a series of sacrifices to be allowed back into the community. And that summarizes basically the first 20 verses of this chapter. But what comes next is a continuation concerning people who've contracted disease who are economically disadvantaged, whereby substitutions are allowed to be made. So substitutions for both the sin and the burnt offerings, whereby the cost and the quality of the flour and the grain offered could be reduced. And the objective was to make these offerings accessible to everyone, regardless of their financial means. So up to this point, the chapter has thus far addressed the cleansing and the restoration of an individual and putting in distinguishing levels between those who could afford standard offering and those who were financially limited. The rest of this chapter will now elaborate on the ceremonial cleaning of a house. Now at the outset I mentioned the term leprosy, didn't I? That's what's often used in certainly the older translation of this. But here we can find that this applies to all sorts of things. In fact, it's described in some translation as a leprous plague in a house. Now, Bible experts suggest that this is likely to refer to some kind of fungus, mildew or dry rot. It's even translated that way in some modern translation. So this is not at all what we would call modern day leprosy. 
So this is the key point in realising that this term, often translated leprosy, encompasses a broad range of conditions. And the Lord has made a provision for a house that has been contaminated and not that the house should be emptied. It is emptied before the priest goes into it. And so in a sense, it is quarantined. And what we have here is really an extension of the laws concerning clothing and personal effects that was already discussed in chapter 13 in the closing section of this. But again, these rituals and cleansing rules are all pertain to material things, not personal. Verse 37 tells that the priest examines the house and if a plague is found in the walls or the house is ingrained with stakes, describing various aspects of it, then the house must be closed and quarantined for seven days from the date he initially examined it. So they effectively isolate the house, preventing anyone from entering or leaving it, no, anyone from entering it for a week. Now that doesn't really sound that peculiar to us. Sounds like common sense, really. Sometimes even today we get situations where a building is restricted for safety reasons or we saw that in certain parts of the world during the pandemic where there were outbreaks, in particular housing blocks. But on this situation, after a seven-day period, the priest examines the house again. If the plague is then seen to have spread on the walls and then the contaminated stones are removed and thrown into a designated unclean place outside the city. The house is then scraped inside and out all around and the dust that is scraped off is also taken away and put in that designated unclean place outside the city and new stones are brought in in place of the contaminated ones and then the house is completely replastered. Interesting, isn't it? Sounds like good common sense health protection, doesn't it? So what it's saying is if an active plague is found in a house, the house is deemed unclean and and the infected area is completely removed, potentially removing stones, timber and plaster and all of these are taken away and the house is checked to make sure this sort of infection, mildew, whatever it is, doesn't come back to the point that if it keeps recurring then it's decreed that the entire structure, the entire property must be demolished and destroyed. Also worth noting is the fact that if anyone enters the house during this period, then they are designated unclean until the evening of that day. It also says anyone who does that must wash their clothes and that they mustn't eat in the house. So there's a real focus here and importance in maintaining the cleanliness of people who are potentially entering or coming into contact with these infected areas, thereby, of course, preventing the potential spread of disease among the community. It's all about creating precautionary measures to ensure the containment of possible dangers to the people. Now all of this information may sound familiar, doesn't it? It's a bit of a repetition of what has gone before but this time applied into this different situation. So this whole chapter is talking about plagues, diseases, but things that also can affect property as well as houses. And very simply, if it affects a person and it is witnessed on their skin, then they're isolated and put outside the camp. And if later they're cleansed, then they go through an elaborate ceremony designed with the purpose simply to restore them to fellowship within the community. This meant they could, of course, return to the tabernacle. They who had been unclean are now ceremonially clean. 
Those who were ceremonially unclean through the steps taken are made ceremonially clean, thereby ensuring there is a process in which way things can be consecrated for use again and can be allowed into the temple area for the worship and praise of God. But how does all of this apply today? We know we are not under the Mosaic law. That's been a motif I've been repeating all through this book of Leviticus. And for that, indeed, we can be thankful. Can you imagine having to go through all these ceremonies every time you were sick? It would be not only a challenge, but it would also be incredibly expensive, wouldn't it? So then, how do we apply and live out the ancient practice, the principle behind the ancient practice in our lives today? Well, let me quickly turn to another passage in Isaiah chapter 38, where we read the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, who himself has been sick and is now recovered. And he reflects on his illness, expressing that he thought he was going to die and how the Lord restored him, delivering him, as he describes it, from his pit of corruption from death itself. The culmination of Hezekiah's reflection is found in verse 16 where it says, For you have cast all my sins behind your back. So this passage highlights that Hezekiah believed he was delivered from death, believed his sins had also been cast behind God's back, thereby enabling him to continue praising and living. It emphasizes the importance of living a life post-illness and praising God. It affirms that if we are alive, we should take that as an opportunity to celebrate and to praise God. This concept is also mirrored in the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon conveys a similar thought, saying, when we are alive, we can praise God, and when we can die, we can no longer do so. So we should give thanks and do so, particularly when we've been delivered from illness. So in conclusion, Leviticus contains these ancient practices But they're all, they're all just meant to signify the significance of the fact that we can be cleansed and consecrated and brought back into fellowship with God. Now, while, as I said, we don't follow these practices literally today, we can still derive valuable lessons from them by recognizing the importance of ongoing spiritual cleansing and consecration in our own lives and the fact that there's always an opportunity to thank and praise the Lord, well, particularly when we've been delivered from illness, but really something that we should do every chance we're given in this life. This is a reminder for us to continually seek spiritual cleansing and consecration, giving thanks through our life for all that we've been given. You see, Hezekiah got healed. He recovered from his illness, something that he actually thought was going to be terminal. And what did he do? He expressed it by declaring, you've delivered me from my corruption, so I'm going to praise you. In essence, he was saying, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for delivering me. And in response to that, I'm going to serve you and I'm going to tell the others how you saved me. And he proclaimed, it says, by saying, I'm going to sing about this with songs and with stringed instruments, and I'm going to do it in the house of the Lord. So what this tells me is from a New Testament perspective, when we're blessed, particularly with a healing from illness, it goes without saying that we should praise the Lord and give thanks for that, particularly amongst the community of other believers. We should testify to the Lord's graces in healing us and bringing us through. 
Now, when we look at Leviticus 14, we saw that they had to offer sacrifices in their way. And when we look at Hezekiah, we also see that he praised the Lord. But this time he was able to do that and not offer sacrifice. He simply already, still in the Old Testament, simply thanked and praised the Lord. But I have one more passage to reinforce this understanding from a New Testament perspective. And you'll not be surprised to see here I'm going to return to Hebrews again. The great New Testament passage for interpreting Leviticus. And I believe that this truly appreciates the application, explains the application of this Leviticus passage here in chapter 13, verse 15, where it says, Therefore by him, that's of course Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks in his name. This is the verse that ties together Leviticus 14, Hezekiah passage in in Isaiah 38, in the sense that we too are, yes, to offer a sacrifice, but in the New Testament, instead of giving a sacrifice, we're simply called upon to offer a sacrifice of praise. Praise is absolutely described as a sacrifice in the New Testament. In fact, Hebrews tells us it's a substitute, a replacement for animal sacrifice. Even in the Old Testament, by the time of Isaiah, Hezekiah had begun to recognize that this was the case. When he got healed from illness and sickness, he just simply praised the Lord and it says he witnessed to God's people in the temple. In other words, he did that in front of other people. And Hebrews again tells us the same from the New Testament perspective. In the next verse, thirteen sixteen, it says, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So we've seen various sacrifices in Leviticus. This list of sacrifices played out again for us for a repeated time. The sin offering, the burnt offering, the transpass offering, all those. However, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews and elsewhere, who remembers addressing Christians, he picks up the concept of sacrifices and he's saying simply, look, Today, let me tell you what sacrifices are today. They're simply praise, but listen, doing good for others and sharing what you have, which may involve the giving of money or resources and time in service of other people. He labels all those types of things, all those types of actions as sacrifices. Now, Leviticus 14 does not directly apply it to us, but Hebrews 13, in its interpretation of it, does. So when we are blessed in any way, especially when we recover from illness, the very essence of Leviticus illustrates we need to offer a sacrifice. But in our case, these sacrifices are manifest as a sacrifice of praise. In other words, praise and give thanks in a way that other people will see that you're acknowledging that it is what God has done and then make continuing sacrifices by doing good to others. That's and offering a sacrifice by sharing of your resources. You know, we all get sick from time to time. But remember, sometimes God actually allows sickness, giving us an opportunity, well, in a sense, to be on our back so we're forced to look up. Now, that's not always how it happens. Not saying that by any means. But what I'm saying is when you are sick, When you are confined through illness, there is always an opportunity for us to thank and give praise for it and for the opportunity to spend time with him. 
Maybe it's only when we get really sick that it focuses our mind and we really appreciate how dependent we are on God and what we can do for us. So next time, if you or a loved one are sick, remember after you get well, remember to offer a sacrifice of praise. Because that not only fills Leviticus under the Old Covenant, but it also embraces and fulfills the promise given in Hebrews under the New Covenant as well. You know what? Sickness can serve as a reminder to simply look up and see God and appreciate what he's done in our life and all that we've been given by him. So thank you for joining me again today in our exploration of Leviticus. Stay tuned tomorrow for more insights and reflections on the timeless teachings that we can dig out embedded deep within the book of Leviticus. My name's Jeremy McCandless and you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.